Hello, and thanks for joining us. This is Disruptors at Work, an integrated care podcast, where all of the topics will be with subject matter experts, practitioners and providers, leaders and managers who are implementing integrated health projects all over the world. I'm your host, Dr. Kara English. Welcome back to Disruptors at Work, an integrated care podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kara English, the CEO of Cummings Graduate Institute. I am joined today by two wonderful guests and colleagues of mine, Dr. Hugh Grant Baldwin Jr., who is the Assistant Director of Academic Programs for Cummings Graduate Institute, and Dr. Leilani Aquin, who is the Director of Behavioral Health at the Wellness Center for the San Carlos Apache Tribe. Welcome to you both. Very happy to be here. Very happy to be here. I'm super excited to be here too. Thanks. Yeah, I'm just great. I'm, I'm grateful for your time. Everybody is so busy, especially this time of year, but it's a great time for us to get together and talk about a new partnership that we have between Cummings Graduate Institute and the San Carlos Apache Tribe. So we recently received funding for this partnership from the Freeport McMoran Foundation. And the purpose of the project that we proposed, which is a mental health training for tribal healthcare workforce, is to improve the health of the San Carlos Apache tribe community by filling a behavioral health training gap. So CGI will deliver through this project culturally informed training to tribal healthcare professionals to enhance their capacity to respond to the increased needs of individuals with serious mental illness, severe emotional disturbances, and substance use disorders. So let's start by having you, Leilani, tell us a little bit about the Wellness Center and also just the community and how healthcare kind of works. Um, because for our listeners, they may not, you know, we have listeners from all across the United States. They may not be familiar with the geographic area or with the tribe itself. So tell us a little bit about that and, and a little bit about the Wellness Center and what you do there. So the San Carlos Apache tribe, their reservation is... Uh, could be considered Northern Arizona. The tribe has about a million, a million, little over a million acres. Um, and it's located between Globe and Safford, which covers Gila County and Graham County in, in Arizona. It is pretty rural out here, a lot of open, open area. Um, I believe there are more than 16,000 enrolled members. Um, we have a patient base of almost, I'm going to say like 7,000. So for, for those who aren't familiar with tribal communities, um, Indian Health Services provides, in the past, Indian Health Services, which is federal division um, and also provides federal funding directly to tribal communities. So in the past, there were IHS facilities, and as communities began to grow and govern themselves, they're able to take on their own clinics and um, behavioral health functions, things like that. So healthcare here in the San Carlos community, uh, San Carlos Apache Nation, is sort of separate. So I, I oversee the wellness center, which is the behavioral health substance use piece. And that is a tribal, it still falls under the tribal government, directly under the Department of Health and Human Services. The physical health part, right? So the medical clinic 
is a public law 638 contract, which allows them to be a separate entity. And they are an enterprise of the tribe, but they are not considered a tribal department. Right. So we, the wellness center is co-located. We are a behavior health building. Our primary location is the behavior health building that was built on the San Carlos Apache healthcare campus. Mm -hmm. So although we share the same campus, we're not technically in the same building. We're separated by like a parking lot. The wellness center actually has gone through a couple of merges over the last 20 years and the funding is federal. So it used to be strictly substance use treatment. And then as time went on, then there was the merge between uh, mental health and substance. So full comprehensive behavioral health services. At this time, we employ about 72 staff members. I am proud to say that 80% of them are enrolled Apache. Mm -hmm. um, That's special. That's, that's hard to do on any Mm -hmm. American Indian reservation. And I know first nations in, in Canada have the same issue. So that that's really impressive. It is very exceptional. Yeah. I was amazed when I came on board and I, and I saw that 60 at the time I, when I joined the team, there were about 80, 80 some people Mm -hmm. and 65 were uh, actually enrolled with the Apache tribe, San Carlos Apache tribe. And I was floored. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and one of the things that has really amazed me, I've worked in other, other tribes in, in other areas of Indian country, this particular community, when we were onboarded, if you are non-native, you are signing a, a piece of paper that says you are training people up. You're training them up because you're going to train yourself right out of your job. Basically, it says you are not guaranteed a job because you are supposed to be training us. Wow. So, that's yeah. impressive. That's a yeah. And I mean, you know, wow. back to the idea of sovereignty, yep. that that's what mm-hmm. you, would, you would want to see within within communities, you know, that idea of for us to be sustainable and for us to, you know, really rely upon ourselves and become fully sovereign, self-reliant. We we need yep. training, we need education, and and that's really cool. Wow. And that is like the perfect segue to partnerships, right? And mm-hmm. our partnership with CGI. So part of, and I've been here for a short while, about two and a half years now. And so I proudly hail from CGI. I am a a DBH graduate. And I believe that that work, the work that that we do as DBHs, right? That integrated care, it really is helpful, particularly in Indian country, Mm -hmm. because there are such, there's so much history there, right? Yes. um, historical trauma and then that leads to all these chronic conditions and and all these health disparities and so yes we have substance use programs but if we don't if we aren't able to connect the two right and help people understand your body is all weirded out because these things are going on and if we can stabilize some of your medical stuff we can work you like we can help you help yourself so uh, when I came on board, we I immediately started looking at ways to connect with the with the to open communications and connect with the health clinic, and in being able to do that, having conversations um, with with the CEO, CMO, and and those folks over at the at the health corporation, we realized that our teams are at a deficit. You know, um, we had been working in complete silos. The wellness center was completely separated and it was really hard to get an appointment. It was really, at that time, it was 
just, you know, it was set up for private practice. So, sure. Sure. so it was hard. It was hard <laughs> to collaborate and, and cooperate. So through a grant um, that the hospital wanted to apply for, uh, the um, tribal opioid response grant, it requires integration. And so we just took that and we ran with it. Good, yeah. And, and, and that's sure. where we started to f- figure out like, geez, our, provi- our medical providers don't know anything about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And then our team, we had shifted the way that we provide services. So even our team is at a, hey, we got to learn, we're like a quick learning curve and figuring out how to respond to, to um, build capacity. Right. So, well, so I'll we started you, looking is, around for support. Yes, yeah, that's, 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 um, uh, that's the very commendable uh, in providing this holistic service. Uh, because, you know, and what we learn in integrated care is that 25% um, uh, patients who have uh, mental health to substance use disorders uh, die 25% faster than the normal population. So providing that holistic care in, in the direction that uh, the wellness center is going and what's been presented uh, is, is very exceptional. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing this, you know, uh, f- coming to further fruition you know, to push integrated care. Me too. I, I'm so excited. I feel like, um, I feel like it's there. We recently, one of our, and you know, and she was our only psychologist uh, for 10 and under. So they had been trying to launch some, some form of integrated care. And I came on board um, and helped to do that. And it has been an amazing run. And she actually switched teams, but we don't have 43 kids on medication only treatment anymore. We don't, right. and, and man, it's been amazing. We had two families that were really, really struggling and they have successfully exited treatment. That's an amazing thing. In that is amazing. Or anywhere in the United States, you know, for mm-hmm. breaking cycles and cycles of multiple harms and traumas, you know, within a family cycle. And then you look at the social determinants of health and yeah, what that all means when you're trying to break all of that. Yeah. It's an amazing accomplishment. So that really shows and demonstrates, you know, uh, some people might say, wow, only two families. Yes. Two families, which is a huge thing for any one system to be able to say that they've, you know, successfully been able to exit treatment because the outcomes have been so great and so impactful for them. So, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen a family completely exit a system when they had such, you know, chronic and complex issues going on generationally. You know, and for me to see it in a two and a half, three year span. Mm-hmm. That's huge because I've been that doing this huge. for a while. Yeah. yeah. But it was an amazing, you know, we had OT, PT, speech, everybody, peds cooperating. Um, and man, it's been an amazing run. And they and these families hadn't had consistent medical care, which right. when we started to care for the medical pieces, everything calmed down. Yes. Which is the whole point, right? And then we can actually engage the parenting part and we can engage it just, it's an amazing thing. And so through these encounters and through, you know, lessons learned right in the last man, and then the pandemic is a whole different thing, but, but through those lessons, right, we started, you know, Hey, how can we, 
how can we teach the team? How can we build capacity across the team? And so we started to look for partners and, mm-hmm. and it was awesome when CGI came, just kind of came out and said, hey, we're <laughs> going to have to give me help. <laughs> lucky you. <laughs> yes, lucky me. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm so happy to hear about some of the successes. And I know, you know, you briefly mentioned their COVID. What are some of the lessons from COVID? You know, what, what were some of the big impacts on the community from COVID? And how did you and your team pivot and, and address those as they were coming up? And of course, we're still addressing them. Yeah. So one of the key things that occurred during, <clears throat> during the, this time that, you know, during the pandemic, um, we, had, we had at the time a five-member Life is Precious team, which specifically addressed suicidality in the community under a pilot project, you know, with collaborative efforts and coaching from uh, John Hopkins. So this team instantly morphed into a crisis team. Mm-hmm. respond to everything anything and show up and we'll put clinicians on call behind you so if you guys triage the heck out of this we can catch up the other thing is san carlos apache tribe was at the forefront when they established an alternative um, care site mm. so the um alternative the ACS, right, is where if you tested positive, this is where you would go. Mm-hmm. And they would care for you there. You would be there. You would quarantine there so that that we could monitor. And so one of the other big shifts is we had to learn how to do. The team was coached into quick 5A assessments. Mm-hmm. Showing up, figuring it wow. out. And then they had to, like, crash course in um, why the hospital cannot send an alcoholic to an ACS with no alcohol. Because they, you know, there are lots of critical kinds of program changes that we have to just jump right into and try to educate, like, this is why we do it really quickly. And we're, we're, um, and so even, even with that, I was like, that's where we recognized all of the deficits, right? So now it's showing and we're just putting band-aids because we're training as we're running, right? We're running and training and, um, and so that was a, a huge learning lesson for us, but what it did was it bridged uh, communication between us and the hospital. So now we're really functioning as a team, right? Hey, we need you guys to every single patient that was admitted to the ACS family, whatever, mm-hmm. we made face-to-face contact over there at the ACS, Wonderful. talk to them, let them know about wellness center services. And then we had our, and, and I'm talking about us as clinicians, like I, even me, I showed up. And I was mm-hmm. like, hey, here are some services and our Life is Precious team is going to follow up with you in a couple of days. <laughs> so coming in, they saw us face-to-face, exiting, they got a phone call and a follow-up phone call. So to coordinate that massive like That's a lot. service provision with the hospital, it just put us in a space where we could have these conversations um, and mm-hmm. then do a little bit of teaching with the um, healthcare providers too about mm-hmm. this is how we approach and this is why. Um, and then, you know, I love, I just want to take a pause really quick and just say like, you know, you and I met when we were in our doctoral degrees together, you finished up your degree after we launched, uh, CGI, all the many conversations we had together as students, when we were interning together at the Chandler care center. And, you know, now to 
And we've had many conversations before, Leilani, but I just want to say it is just so exciting to know the impact that you've had in the community, being able to look at, we are in this crisis together as this, you know, healthcare worker team. How can we streamline this and not just streamline it, streamline it from a financial perspective, which is, you know, the approach that a lot of healthcare systems took, but how can we really make this the best care we can possibly deliver for every human being that we see. And I love that idea of the life is precious team. It just really reinforces not just like the, the cultural approach to life, but the healthcare approach to life, you know, I just think that's a really beautiful thing that, that you deserve lots of applause for. I think the team deserves the applause because they moved not knowing what the next step was. So Mm. they just let me leave. That was the amazing part. Um, And, and it's just has been very, it's been exciting, honestly. Mm -hmm. And, and to hear them say, this is what I need. This, I help me understand this. This is what our team needs. This is how we need to grow. So we've done a lot of educating up, right? So we elevate by education and training. It's been an amazing run. And I am excited for this, this partnership for true training so that we can maintain um, mm-hmm. and, and, and the sustainability, right? So that everyone's trained in the same way. Mm-hmm. Love that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Outside of the partnership, you know, one of the things that we like to do on the podcast is provide information for those who really don't have a lot of knowledge about Native American communities or mm-hmm. indigenous communities and the link between, you know, healthcare services and just the, the culture, you know, the culture of um, being indigenous, specific tribal culture, specific language, um, you know, and so tell us a little bit about what are some of the differences that you've noticed or observed and, you know, as yourself, you can speak from your own perspective, your own cultural perspective as a native Hawaiian, you can talk about the differences, you know, but I'm just, I'm hoping to share a little bit more with our audience about if you have not worked with indigenous Americans in some way, shape or form, what, what are some things that we should be doing to ensure that we are culturally sensitive, appropriate, respectful, and really meeting a person at where they want to be met from, from moment one in the interaction. So it takes me a little bit to get, I've been blessed because I am native Hawaiian. I've never had to really fight for people, you know, come into a community and have to not, not fight, but have to like take special kinds of measures so that people will respond to me. I really am blessed that because I'm a different kind of brown. People just talk. They're okay. What I do know is um, high text, high context communication. Mm -hmm. Um, Being so even for me, right, in academia and in and in private practice, in in corporate, we just want to know, we want you to get to the point real quick. Like A to B I don't care about the excuses in between, blah, blah, blah. In indigenous communities, a grandma will come and she will talk about the her brother that was born in 1956 
right? So grandma came 15 minutes late to her appointment. She's going to start with her brother born in 1956. Mm-hmm. Tell you this whole story about 10 minutes long to explain to you that her granddaughter brought her late because they share the vehicle with four other family members that had to be dropped off at school and dropped off at work. And, and that's why she's late. Mm-hmm. If we don't allow that mm-hmm. conversation, we can't build a relationship. That's right. Uh, you can't build trust. And sometimes, particularly in healthcare, you know the system is stressed and it's fast paced and it's, we got to get it done. And, you know, and as much as our medical providers want to try to, yep. they're still rushing them out the door. Yeah. So yeah. I Absolutely. really believe that if, if, you know, and that's why we're important, right? The integrated, you know, supports in between. But if they don't allow these stories to be told, you're not going to know what's important to this family. You're not going to know how they're, why they're missing medications or um, why their blood sugar is out of control because you're not going to hear the other parts about, oh, my my sister's granddaughter died last week in a car accident right. and we were up all night trying to do this and this and this and that's why I didn't take my medicine. I didn't, right. you know, my blood sugar is out of whack and I feel really sick right now. Right. So I think that's really key to, and I do that too. I have like, and I try to rein myself in, but I almost feel like you got to know all the background in order to know why I'm talking to you right now. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. We had a good conversation recently in um, the foundation, the DBH foundations class foundations of the biodyne model, which Grant and I are, you know, co-teaching right now. So we get to have these wonderful conversations with new uh, DBH students at CGI And one of the conversations was just around the, how do you put a limit on the, uh, on the number of minutes that you get with a new person to really build that relationship with them so that they, they trust you Um, and that they will tell you things that they may have never told anybody else, but those things are critical to you as the provider to know so that your treatment approach is as trauma informed as it can possibly be. And so that you can inform them and educate them, right? Elevate through education, just like you said. I love that phrase about their own health risks and and why their behavior change is so critical to the outcome that they want. Um, And we were also talking about how last night we were talking a little bit about how in some healthcare environments, the DBH is kind of the not the head but the neck. So in that, you know, that metaphor from uh, my big fat Greek wedding, um, there's that, you know, the conversation among women who, you know, men may be the head of the family, but women are the neck and the neck turns the head in whatever direction it needs to be pointed in. And we talked about that idea of using psycho judo, which is part of the biodyne model, you know, to, to be the neck, to turn a physician or a system in the direction that it needs to be pointed in. And so what you just told me is, you know, for doctors of behavioral health and and other integrated healthcare staff that are working in Indian community, understanding that, you know, part of being the head and the neck of the healthcare system is really and truly understanding that it might take 50 minutes of a story narrated by a family member to provide you with the clues that relate to medication adherence 
um, attending appointment adherence, um, you know, just maintaining health, transportation needs, food needs, housing needs, mm -hmm. all of the determinants ultimately of health. And that if we don't provide the time and, and really give the respect to individuals to explain to us or to, to tell us, you know, what's going on in those little details, then we may never see the full picture and therefore we may miss exactly what it is that's holding this family back or this, you know, yes. holding this individual back. It's, um, I think it's, it's powerful to be able to have an alliance also with the providers, particularly in Indian country, mm -hmm. because you can learn their prescribing methods, the way they relate to people, um, and how they view particular health conditions. And knowing that um, as trained uh, BHPs, we, we can um, fill in those gaps, bridge those gaps, mm -hmm. you know, and a, a to me, like I still think about this and I'm like, I'm so glad I was in that room for five minutes. Mm -hmm. So we were doing diabetes care, the primary care. She's an amazing provider, right? So she goes in, she sees this patient, she calls the dietitian, the nutritionist dietitian to come in and, and this is a CDE trained, right? She's talking to this patient, comes back out and they still can't figure out why her blood sugars are all crazy. Mm -hmm. I go in there for five minutes, literally five minutes. And I say, hey, where's your, um? can I see your uh, glucose monitor? And she goes, oh yeah. And I go, so I heard the doc said, you know, things have been going on. You're, you're, you've got a grandkid in the hospital. And in this five minute conversation, I'm checking the times on her blood glucose. And mm -hmm. she's telling me she stays up all night, right? Because her kid is in the, her grandkid is in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And in that five minutes, I say, oh, I know what the issue is. And she goes, what? I said, what time do you wake up to take your meds? Mm -hmm. Well, because I'm up all night till about two in the morning. I go to sleep and I wake up at 11. That's my morning dose. Ta-da. Five minutes. Yeah. Five minutes. So I walk wow. out and I go and I say, hey, doc. And she goes, what's up? And I said, you know, you might have to just shift medications. Tell you why. You This, this, and this happened. You know, that is a two-minute consult. And the doc was like, Holy crap, Leo. Thanks. Yeah. You know, it's just trying to, trying to, you know, and, and we're trained to do that. Yeah. And that is an amazing thing because those little things, mm -hmm. yeah, it really does particular because of, particularly because of the social determinants um, right. of health and the disparities, the health disparities, um, you know, African-Americans face the same kind of disparities, Native Hawaiians yes. and in Indian country, diabetes is unreal. And so you know, being able to communicate that because it's, it's the trauma. And if someone's stressed their diabetes, no matter how much medication they're taking, if you're not, if they don't make that connection, um, but you know, we're not going to be able and, to get under control. And that's, that's the power of the, of the DBH to mm -hmm. um, bring insight to uh, providers because, you know, especially dealing with, you know, and, you know, indigenous folk, you know, black and brown folk, um, you know, a lot of people don't know that there's a link between, you know, diabetes and depression or any other type of stressors. So, um, you know, the, the importance of dressing, you know, you know, all the, the social detriments and all, it, as far as the, the different symptoms of depression or whatever the uh, diagnosis is, is very key to the, the, 
the management of that diabetes. And, um, you know, it's already been evidence-based, proven that, you know, um, you know, psychotherapy in combination with um, the medical treatment improves, you know, um, A1C levels uh, by, you know, helping reducing the, uh, the depressive symptoms or any type of stressors that are impacting or acerbating the medical conditions. So um, that, that's a very powerful visual testament. I wish we could have got it recorded visually. <laughs> um, that, that's, that's, a great, that's a great example of the power of deviation being a part of the, um, the primary medical team. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and it, it reminds me kind of of recently I was looking through a, um, a book from a, a woman who has autism, who was talking about as a parent, how sometimes something like teaching your child to tie their own shoes or teaching your child to pour their own juice in the morning. It seems like you're just asking them to do one thing, but in reality, there are about 32 steps for that one thing to occur successfully. And immediately I thought, oh, it's like diabetes management care. We think we're asking one thing, but for that individual that you just, you know, used as a case example, there were several other things that were involved in taking the medication. It was just like one thing, take your medication on time. But there were a million other things going on that the medical provider had no training or just did not experientially know, instinctually know. I bet there's something else going on here. Some, we got to break this down to the individual steps. And you did that so beautifully. So, you know, the seven minutes that you invested in this one patient's case changed the course of treatment for her. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's the... <laughs> that's the ultimate goal of all PBHs. I'll tell you that right there. <laughs> Yep. So we give you several salutes on that. Several yeah, salutes. right. I'm, I'm <laughs> I, it makes it makes me so excited because, um, you know, getting back to Indian country and and the historical trauma. So you know, we maybe people have heard of white coat. Um, Anxiety syndrome. Oh yes, yes. Right. It's the same thing here, and then on top of that. Um, it's really in, ingrained and my, my clinical supervisor who, you know, she's native American and like 15 years, my senior mm-hmm. straight up said, you know, even with white coat anxiety, we natives are trained to believe white is right. And mm-hmm. so they won't question native Americans won't question the professional. Doesn't matter if you white or purple, doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you are the professional they don't question. And so it's important to give them to be quiet for a little bit so that they can respond to you, Um, you know, and, and to make sure that we're following up, you know, so that, so we know that they did understand coming away from that, Mm -hmm. um, our interactions. So it's, it's that it's really about taking time and recognizing that, um, you know, there are, trust things that go on Mm -hmm. Um, but if we can create new interactions new ways to interact with them and build trust right and we're only asking a little thing at a time with no shaming and uh, you know and that's huge if they feel scolded or shamed absolutely it's hard to get them to come to the clinic or or um, follow up with you 
So giving that space for them to think about it for a little bit and process and then respond to you, um, to story tell, right? Tell the, the, the narrative piece and all of that. And, and also reassuring that, you know, even if we got to guide this discussion, it's just because we want, we want what's best. We want what's right. good and we'll help them advocate for themselves. Right, right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and <clears throat> never is the, you know, idea of motivational interviewing from the perspective of exploring the resistance or exploring the barriers. What's getting in the way of your success here? Mm-hmm. So few medical providers ever take the time, you know, whether you're a diabetes educator or an endocrinologist or a, you know, women's health professional. So few times do we really take the time to say, like you did, Hey, can you show me this? And, you know, maybe what's getting in the way or what, what, you know, what's, what's stopping you from success. When I've had that, when I've asked that question, sometimes to folks, they're not even sure how to respond Mm -hmm. because they haven't even had the time to stop and think through, I don't really know. Well, let me think about that. Let's walk through the steps together. And then when you start to break it down, you know, at times it can get into even just a thought of, I don't think I can be successful with this. And ultimately, because I don't think I could be successful with this, I don't think I can successfully change the behavior because it seems so hard and impossible. I don't even take that first step because I kind of beat myself right out of the gate, but I didn't even realize I was doing that. Yep. That's, that's pretty frequent actually. Mm -hmm. But again, if we don't, if we don't look at that, like, so why not? Why not get better? Like, you know, if we don't look at that, mm-hmm. uh, then no, then people don't get to think about it, you know? Right. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, the partnership with CGI and, you know, kind of what some of the aims are. So uh, when we wrote the grant with uh, Together, we decided that we would initially come together you know, kind of as integrated care specialists, and that's yourself included, Leilani, and us here at CGI with community members in San Carlos so that we could say, here's what we think are some of the gaps in training and education. But we also understand that, you know, maybe the evidence has completely left out the indigenous nature of health and behavioral change. So how can we pair, like you, like you mentioned before, how can we bring those two together to try to create a system of education and training that works best? So we're meeting as a team next week with um, some identified subject matter experts from the cultural perspective, really cultural leaders in wellness um, from San Carlos community. And we're going to develop kind of an outline of, the, of, of a tiered approach at training the whole team from front office to back office, and then a focus on the behavioral health and crisis response teams who are, you know, really priority care members for individuals with very complex healthcare and behavioral healthcare needs. So how do you imagine that the trainings and we also have a, a piece in the, the grant project that will include, you know, some consultation calls. So once we do the training, we're going to follow that up with a regular call with the teams. How do you imagine the, the trainings will kind of bridge some of the gaps? How do I imagine the training will bridge some of the gaps? Well, again, it's about all being on the same page mm-hmm. and having that same baseline understanding of 
what's, uh, what is the appropriate standard of care? What do we look at ethically? How do we approach things? And particularly, how do we see it from our community perspective? Um, and, you know, for, for us as an organization, I say that we're young in development because people were very, had very specific tasks associated with their, um, you know, their roles, right? So we have a ton of behavioral health techs, but we aren't using them to full capacity, like how you can really use a behavioral health tech. So we decided to start training them clinically, training them up, right? And then we have these case managers, life is precious case managers, but they were only trained like this in this like specific suicidality, follow this and do this. And and then we said, oh no, we're just going to respond to anybody who's feeling some type of way because we have to right now. Um, And so we're a very young team in the learning. So it's going to bridge every gap. Really what this is, is going to create a foundation Mm -hmm. so that we're all operating and sending the same message and engaging in the same way and doing it in a in the most appropriate way so that we are um, addressing disparity, you know, all the social determinants, mm-hmm. you know, we're so, so we're just, again, we're just creating a solid foundation. Right. So, so we can move forward in a good way. There's yeah. so many gaps. <laughs> so. I love that approach too, because, you know, it kind of reminds me when the Kaiser health system said, we're going to open our own medical school because we're mm-hmm. kind of tired of, of hiring doctors who can't mm-hmm. deliver care the Kaiser way. So we're just going to open our own medical school. So you're kind of opening your own medical training school. I do see it as, you know, bridging those gaps. And also, um, as my son likes to say, level up, right? Yes. <laughs> mm. In gaming words or in gaming language, we're, you know, leveling up your whole, um, the, the medical workforce for the community because we're giving everyone a shared language and a shared, you know, understanding of what the model can be when it functions at its best. And also knowing, okay, something's going wrong here because it's not functioning at its best. How do we solve that problem? How do we address that? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm really excited about it. I, I think that, um, you know, I just know that you and I have a long history of working successfully together. I feel like when we get together, things, really cool things happen. And I'm excited about that. And Dr. Baldwin's got great experience in, in working in lots of communities in North Carolina. And now he's in North Carolina. (laughs) It's so beautiful. (laughs) Yes, it is. Especially this time of the year. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I just read um, a really beautiful book called Where the Crawdads Sing. Have either of you read that book? Uh-uh. No, I haven't. It's it's a really interesting, it's a murder mystery book. Um, and it's the, the setting is in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And oh, okay. uh, it's really interesting. Dr. Baldwin, I'll have to share it with you offline because I think you would enjoy reading it. But okay. uh, it's interesting from a perspective, you know, we're kind of talking about just the indigenousness of you know the indigenous knowledge indigenous knowledge and sovereignty of what what makes life right and well for us 
Mm-hmm. And in this book, there's um, it's centered around the protagonist who's, you know, grows up in the swamp in the in the marshland areas alone mm-hmm. because dysfunctional, abusive, you know, father and, and family kind of just shatters and, and flies to the winds, leaving a very young girl in the marsh alone and very, very afraid of town because she's mistreated by town. And I think wow. in a lot of ways you know, black, brown, indigenous communities have a lot in common with kind of that theme and that, you know, that story, Mm -hmm. what she understands Mm -hmm. about life, about nature, about health, wellness, and healing herself, um, Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, what, what is right for her differs drastically from what, you know, people in the town would say she needs to do or what is needed um, for her. And so, you know, just kind of circling it back to what we've been talking about today, I think it's a really important theme and something that all healthcare providers and and the healthcare system at large really needs to be thinking hard about Hmm. across the board. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd like to share that, um, you know, there uh, on November 1st, I believe on Netflix, they released a um, gather they released a, a little, just kind of a quick, almost a documentary. Um, mm-hmm. It's called Gather. And Twyla Casador, she um, is part of that. And they talk about the White Mountain Apache and the oh. San Carlos Apache. And they talk about food sovereignty mm-hmm. and how food is healing and and why it's important to teach and to bring back traditional foods and you know, as we're going through school, right? So we're, we're in our programs, we're teaching us about all kinds of things. And, and I particularly worked for a diabetes program. So in Indian countries, so they're like, well, mix your food half white flour and half brown flour, but really they have, you know, so when I work at Salt River, they have this tepary bean that is the size of your pinky and that has more protein. And, you know, and they talk about mesquite flour they're talking uh, about food sovereignty they're talking about how it's important because that's what your body works with it it talks about how to and and so it plays right into this this book that carol was talking about Mm -hmm. and it also really emphasizes you know for us uh you know as we engage in chronic health you know the chronic health care pieces of wellness like we need to help we need to help encourage that because even for Hawaiians, right? So Dr. Terry Shintani years and years and years ago with his Hawaii diet, guess what? That's why my husband doesn't take diabetes medication today. Awesome. Um, that's amazing to hear. Yeah. He's been, <laughs> he's been off medication for like 10 years, about a year and a half after they diagnosed him. He, wow. he didn't have to take meds anymore because we just went back to the natural food sources for our bodies. Your indigenous bodies. Right. So, oh. and you know, that is so interesting to me because as you know, you know, you and I did a lot of diabetes research yeah. and program development together at the, at the Chandler um, care center. And I had been with the, the tribal education partnership that I worked with at, at um, Arizona state university. I went to the Tohono O'odham uh, community Alliance offices down near um, the border. I can't remember the name of the, is it cells? Arizona? So, yep. Okay. Yep. So the Toka Alliance was so interesting to me because they had the tepary beans, they had the saguaro buds, they had um, 
lots, you know, we called it at the time we called it the Indian pita jungle because, um, you know, here we were, but it was really interesting because it was really focused on indigenous plants and foods, food sovereignty, like you mentioned, which is really important and as well as health and wellness sovereignty. And the idea of, again, education to elevate the community about what are you know, native and indigenous plants that have higher sources of proteins, you know, mm-hmm. than, than the colonized foods, you know, that are being, you know, you're being told to eat X, Y, and Z. Um, and how can we shift our focus to growing them ourselves, sustaining, you know, healthy community gardens ourselves. And then this beautiful restaurant with a, you know, kind of like a, um, I want to call it a a market next door that had like the beans for sale and the buds for sale and like the um, prickly pear juice Mm -hmm. and um, tea and, you know, things like that, that were for sale. And I was just so impressed by that, that, that um, impression has never left me. And, and I just think that that is so very intrinsic to healthcare and, and the provision of wellness. So well, I want to thank you both for joining me today for this conversation. It's super important, and I'm I'm just thrilled to to be able to work with both of you on this project, and and I can't wait to see how it rolls out. So we'll have to do a follow up podcast to talk again once we've done some of the trainings, and maybe we can invite some community members to talk about their experiences with the trainings and and kind of the value that it's brought to them. I tell you what, I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of CGI and a part of this project. So thank you all for uh, including me into this great vision uh, mm-hmm. and work that's, that's taking place and will be done. I look forward to see it all coming to fruition. Me too. I'm just super excited, super grateful. We are so, gra- we are so glad to call you CGI graduate, Dr. Aquin. Absolutely. Doctor. It's such a big pride for us. <laughs> Me too. I'm so proud. To, seriously. I just, it, 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 I always like minds, right? Yes. Right. Like minds. Saying. It's more energizing so we, than anything. We salute you. <laughs> right back at you guys. Thank okay. you. All right. Thank you so much. And join us next okay. time on the next episode of Disrupting. Sorry, I always get the name of the podcast wrong. Disrupters at Work. Disrupters at Work. That's an awesome podcast. You know, you know, Leo, my my son Liam came up with that. Disruptors at Work. That's awesome. That's cool. That's real cool. I like it. All right. Talk to y'all soon. Thank you. Take care, you guys. All right. Happy holidays. Same to you.